The scripture reading this morning comes from Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, and we'll read verses 9 through 15. And it reads, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be that your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. You may be seated. Well, it's always a privilege for me to be with you, and I'm very grateful for your presence today. Beautiful Sunday morning, and I'm very happy that we can spend it together. For those of you who are online, we're happy that you're with us as well, and we encourage you to open your Bible and follow along with us as we study from God's Word today. And as you can see from the graphic behind me, we are looking at this wonderful discussion about prayer. I don't think you can say too much about it. I don't think you can emphasize it too much, how important prayer really is. The older we are, the more mature we become in faith, the more important prayer becomes to us. And it doesn't take too long as you become a Christian that you begin to see just how valuable prayer really is. And the point that Jesus is making at this juncture of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 16, really he's saying that... uh, God wants both the right action and the right motive, which brings that action about. You know, you can go through the routine of something and not really have the right motive. Actions are to be driven by right motives. And a failure to do that, of course, just simply means we're going through the motions. And what we do as far as our worship is concerned, if we're just going through the motions of it, it's not really coming from our heart, not really coming from our mind not motivated by our heart and our desire to do what is right according to the will of God. As you look at this section of Matthew chapter 6, you're going to see that he's talking about three things here. He talks about almsgiving, he talks about prayer, and he talks about fasting. But the bulk of the information that is given to us is about prayer. And it's not to say that under the old Law, almsgiving was not important, or their fasting was not important under the old law. But it is to say how important it is prayer is both to them and to us. And it really becomes uh, the hub of our relationship with regard to God because of this wonderful way that we have of communing with God. So I want to talk about prayer today. I do this from time to time, and I want to study with you what the Bible has to say about prayer We live in a very chaotic time, as you know. It does not take much on my part to say how troublesome these times really are, how difficult these times are. So it's a bit difficult time that we face, and so it's important that we keep focus where it should be, and that's on God. And the right thing for us to do is to think about prayer, to study about it, and to grow in prayer. One of the first things that Jesus really tells us about prayer is in verse 7. I'm in Matthew chapter 6, and in verse 7, he says, Don't pray like the Gentiles pray. And when you pray, do not heap up 
empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. The first thing he tells me is don't pray like the Gentiles pray. So before I can really understand what he means by this, let me go back and see what the Gentiles were doing in their prayers. He's talked about the Pharisees and how they love to be seen of men. He says, don't pray like the Gentiles pray. Well, what were the Gentiles doing whereby Jesus says, don't pray like that? Well, he tells us in the verse that, you know, they love to use a lot of words in their prayers. He says in the passage, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And so quantity seems to be the most important part to a Gentile's prayer, a heathen prayer. It's a superstitious type of prayer, a superstitious type of incantation, a kind of going through the motions by means of reciting things that have been said over and over again in the same way. There is no efficacious value to that. There is no importance to that because it doesn't come from the heart. And the quantity or the amount of the words they think makes it better. The bigger the prayer, the longer the prayer, the better the prayer. But Jesus said, don't pray like the Gentiles pray, for they love to use a lot of words with regard to their prayer. They think that a lot of words really makes it a better prayer. And you can see how that's the case in the pages of the Bible. How that if we were to go and look at some heathen prayers, they thought quantity is what determined quality. A lot of words made it a lot better. I'm thinking of Elijah in the days of 1 Kings chapter 18. And I have to admire Elijah for a lot of reasons. He, one of the great prophets of God, of course. But Elijah said, you have been halting between two positions long enough. Let's make a decision here. Let's go to Mount Carmel and let's see who really is the God of Israel. Now, I have to admire him for many reasons. First of all, for that reason, we've been tossing this back and forth long enough. Now's the time to drive a stake in the ground. Now's the time for us to decide who's going to be God. Is God going to be God or not? Or is it going to be Baal or one of these foreign gods or one of these pagan gods? Let's go to Mount Carmel. Let's go to Mount Carmel and settle this matter here and there. Mount Carmel was a center for pagan worship. Mount Carmel was a center for, a center for incantations and for uh, pagan religions of the day. So he's really going to their home court, and he's saying, we'll go there and decide this particular matter. Wasn't mean, wasn't by the means of the temple in Jerusalem. We'll go to the very heart of your religion, and we'll decide where it is there or not. Who will be God of Israel? It's a beautiful area. You go on top of Mount Carmel there, and you look out from the mountain, and you can see down into the Jezreel Valley. The Jezreel Valley is a beautiful area in Israel. It's the breadbasket of Israel, very fertile area. And I thought so, uh, standing there looking out and thinking about Old Testament passages about Jezreel and the battles that were fought at Jezreel down in this valley just below. Mount Carmel is a very uh, important site for these particular matters to take place. And so he says, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll get 450 prophets of 
of your religion up here, and let's see what they can do, and we'll let them call upon their God, and if he answers the prayer, he'll be the God of Israel, but if not, we'll call upon Jehovah God, and we'll see, we'll let him be the God of Israel if he answers, you go first. He gives them home court advantage. They got the home field. You go ahead and start it off. We'll see who will settle this particular matter. I have to admire Elijah. How many times have people sat back and said, well, it's a, you know, one pe- some see it this way and some see it that way and some people want to see it another. This man is saying, this is where it is. Let's settle it right here and right now. I admire that in him. Then he goes to the very heart of this pagan religion. We're going to do it right here. We're going to see who really is the God of Israel. If you're in 1 Kings chapter 18, I thought I might read a verse or two out of this passage. It's in verse 25 that I'm thinking about, and I've been summarizing some of these verses. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God. But put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. I ought to read on down through verse 29. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out from them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Do you know what these pagans thought? The more we pray, the more we'll get his attention. The more we rant and rave and use all kinds of words, dancing and jumping around the altar, cutting themselves with knives, with a large quantity of words, we can get our God to see what's going on and he will answer us. Jesus said, do not pray like the Gentiles pray, for they use lots of words in their prayers, as if quantity produces quality. If you say a lot, that makes it better. And the Gentiles were that way. If we can say a lot, and they were ranting and raving and praying all day long, and not a word came from the false god Baal, because there is no god Baal. He's simply a figment of their own imagination and their own devising. You know the rest of that story. I don't have to repeat that for you because it is a thrilling story that you and I have read from the pages of God's Word, how that God brought fire down upon the bullock when Elijah called out for it, consumed the altar, consumed the water and the barrels of water that had been poured out upon the altar, proving once and for all, that he is God of heaven and earth. What a great day that was where the great prophet of God called upon God. He didn't lose, use a lot of words, 
He just called upon God to hear his prayer, and God answered that prayer immediately because he is God. The pagans like to use lots of words in their prayers, incantations, that kind of thing, superstitious type of people. Acts chapter 19, you've got a situation like that in the New Testament. Apostle Paul's on a missionary journey, goes to the great city of Ephesus. What an important city that was. Ephesus was kind of a crossroads type of affair where there was a lot of coming and going, so it's only natural that we go there and preach the gospel because there'll be a lot of Greco-Roman people there. There'll be a lot of access and opportunity for those to hear the Word of God, and so he's using that as an opportunity. Well, as he's preaching... Uh, he's teaching people about the one true God, and they're responding. The people of the ancient city uh, are listening to the gospel of Christ, and they're giving up on their pagan gods. And so what Paul is doing, in effect, is cutting into the prophets of the God-makers. They make these little images. The Greeks called it Artemis. The Romans called it Diana. And they would make these little images for sale. And now nobody's buying the images because they don't believe in that anymore. And they're cutting into the prophets. So something's got to be done here. So now a great uh, crowd begins to assemble there in that theater, which is there today in uh, Ephesus. And a crowd begins to roar over the particular matter. You'll pick up at about verse 33. I'm in Acts 19, if you'd like to read along with me. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. Now Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, verse 34. They're praying for two hours. And they're shouting for two hours as if the more we shout and the more we pray, the more God will hear us and bless us and respond to our particular petition. Jesus said, don't pray like the Gentiles. Don't let your prayer be filled with such vain repetition and such a superstitious type of attitude with regard to God. That's the way Gentiles do it. That's the way the heathen do it. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. I've seen it in the Old Testament. Now I've seen it in the New. How that sometimes people get the idea, the longer the prayer, the better it will be. If I can just fill it with a lot of words, then it will be more efficacious, and God will hear me. The longer the prayer, the better. Now, don't misunderstand the point that is being made here. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus talks about being persistent in prayer. And the Bible is certainly giving us an important lesson in that regard. We should have a persistent attitude about prayer. No one's condemning that. Jesus is not focusing on that point. In Luke chapter 11, verses about 2 through 4, you have this situation where it comes up about the visitor coming at the night. In about verse 7, uh, he comes knocking on the door. Friend, let, lend me three loaves, verse 5, for 
A friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I'm, I have nothing to set before him, and he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet, because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Some translations will say importunity, and what he simply means by that is persistence. By his persistence, he will get up and give him what he needs. The family's asleep. Now, their houses were different from our houses today. Their houses basically were one room, a large room, that kind of thing. Sometimes people would sleep on the top of the house, and there would be a stairway, sometimes outside the house, going to the roof, and one could enjoy the cooler evening breezes from that perspective. But if I get up in the middle of the house now with all the family asleep, I'm going to wake everybody up. Yet because he keeps knocking and because he keeps asking, in turn, he gives him what he needs. Jesus is not condemning persistence in prayer. We keep praying and praying and praying. I'm still here, Luke chapter 11. Let's read verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And of course, he's telling us about the important matter, that God is listening to our prayer, that we continue persistently, we keep on asking, and we keep on asking, and we are persistent in prayer. The man was his friend, and so he comes to him asking for help. I'm looking at Luke chapter 11, and I'm trying to understand this important matter. There's a distinction to be made between a vain repetition and a persistence in prayer. And God is saying, be persistent in your prayer. Keep asking, keep asking. That's the attitude which God has in the matter. There is a friendship that is seen in this particular discussion of Jesus, and because he's friends, he calls upon him and asks for help. And that's the way it is with us and God. If an earthly father wants to help his son, you know God, our heavenly father, wants to help us as we go and ask, and we are persistent in our prayers. The motive is certainly given to us in this regard. Genuine concern of God. A genuine need is being expressed. And for that reason, God is listening to us. And repetition from the heart is okay. Coming back again with a prayer with regard to the genuine need that comes from the heart is okay. It is not a vain repetition. Let me illustrate that one more time. I'm sure we have this concept in our minds very well, but I like the idea of going back and praying to God over and over again. And, and one of the passages that comes to my mind in that regard is always 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'll turn to that passage. You'll recognize it. It's that passage of Scripture where Paul is asking the Lord that this uh, thorn in the flesh be removed. It's a wonderful passage. It's a wonderful context, and one which I'm sure that you'll want to 
study rather carefully, and there's a lot of interesting aspects about this, but for our purposes at the present, I look at verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And I'll explain the context on another occasion. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. These are great passages and great thoughts that the inspired writer is giving us. Before the present consideration, let's not lose focus on the point. He went three times with that prayer. Three times he asked God. God is not condemning a persistent prayer. Three times he comes asking, let this thorn be removed from me. It is not that Jesus is saying, don't ever come back to me about that again. But when he says, don't pray like the Gentiles, which is my initial point, don't let it be filled with a vain repetition, mindless type of wording, something that really doesn't come from the heart. Now, sadly, we still have that problem today. Vain repetitions. We're not talking about persistence. We're talking about going over and over and over the same memorized platitudes that we've said over and over again that do not come from our heart. We still have that problem today. Do you know there are some people in a large portion of the world go to what is called a prayer wheel, and Tibetan monks will go to this wheel and give that wheel a turn. And the idea there is that these prayers are going up to God as they turn the wheel. There's no thought behind it. There's nothing coming from their heart. It is a pagan type of ritual that is saying, as I turn the prayer wheel, the prayer will go up to God. Don't pray like the Gentiles pray in some kind of meaningless, vain repetition. There are some folks who believe in lighting candles. When they light the candle, the candle is to say that a prayer is going up to God. There's no heart in it. There's no thought with regard to the matter, other than the fact a candle has been lit, and it sort of puts prayer on automatic pilot. So as long as the candle is being lit, then the prayer goes up to God continually. Vain repetition. There's no heart in it. There's no mind behind it. There are some folks who will take beads and they will count those beads. And they will have so many, uh, say so many of these, uh, the Lord's Prayer or what they've come to call Hail Marys with regard to each bead. And they say one after each bead and they'll do another one, they'll do another one. I was flying from someplace, um, Wyoming. I was preaching a gospel meeting, Lander, Wyoming. And I was trying to get back to Denver, Colorado, pick up a flight there and get back to the Lord's country. And it was one of those little commuter-type planes, and it was 
rough. It was bouncing up and down and up and down. And I, man, I tell you what, I'm not that great a flyer to begin with, but man, this thing was really bouncing around. I noticed this person next to me, and I thought, am I the only one that's concerned about this? And this lady there had uh, these beads, and she was counting those beads off. She was concerned about that. And I thought then, is that coming from the heart? Does that come from the mind? Is that what Jesus is saying? Do not pray like the Gentiles pray with vain repetition. See, we have that problem today. We have problems with people who just simply say the same prayer over and over and over again. And it doesn't come from the heart, and it doesn't come from the mind, but it comes simply from rote memory, memorization, whether it be the lighting of candles or the counting of beads, whatever that situation might be. Jesus is saying it's not quantity, it's not length that matters. It's what comes from the heart motivating what we say and our mind that God is interested in. Sometimes we are so impressed with uh, the wording of a prayer. And I am in no means drawing any kind of dispersion with regard to the fine, sincere prayers that we have from this pulpit and from others as well. But sometimes, you know, the word, it's a very poetic prayer. And we're impressed with the poeticness of the prayer. Or sometimes the prayer is eloquently said. And we're impressed with that. Sometimes the prayer is rather lengthy. It's a long prayer. And we're impressed with the length of the prayer. I don't think God's so impressed with that. I don't think he's impressed with the length of it. I don't think so much the poetic nature of it. I don't think so much the eloquent aspect of it. What God is impressed with is it coming from your heart. And are you communing with God? And that communing with God becomes the hub of our relationship with God. That now as a child of God, I have this wonderful blessing of prayer whereby I can go to God and through Jesus Christ commune with God himself. What a blessing that is. Under the Old Testament law, they had to have a high priest. The priest would go and officiate in their worship services. And you and I have talked about that and studied some of those particular matters. It becomes a rather complicated system at times with regard to the Old Testament law. Now we live under a better law, the New Testament law, and in doing so... We're looking at the fact, I, as a child of God and a New Testament priest, my own priest, go to God through Jesus Christ in prayer. And do I really understand something of the sincerity and the importance of that particular prayer with regard to my heart, my mind, and God's reception of it? I've got to be careful here. As a young preacher, I was invited to speak from place to place, and I wasn't preaching in a regular congregation, we might say, every Sunday, the same congregation. I was young. In fact, I started out so young, I, couldn't, I wasn't old enough to drive. My parents would drive me, take me to my preaching appointments that I'd received. Somebody called me on the phone and said, we need 
somebody to fill in, would you be able to do that? And I would say, yes, I would. My parents will take me. And over a period of time, as I was filling in here and filling in there and going to this congregation to help them and that kind of thing, and I was young, I was just a young fellow, and, um, but I noticed I kept hearing the same prayers. I would be over here, and then I'd go over there, and then somebody over here on that part of the county would ask me to come and preach, and I would go over there, and men would get up. And I'm not questioning the sincerity uh, of anyone in that particular regard, but it, it struck me as interesting. I already knew what phrases they were going to say. I already knew the same kind of wording was being said over here and over there. And I'm not questioning their sincerity, but I'm saying it came up the same way every time. And I was concerned about that even then. I'm concerned about it now. When I sit down at the table, we pray. We pray for our food. And I'm conscious of the fact that if I'm not careful, it'll be the same prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the food. In Jesus' name, amen. What kind of prayer is that? Where I just say the same thing over and over again. I've got to be careful not to pray like the Gentiles pray. I've got to be careful not to be filled with vain repetitions, which I have memorized over and over again. But let this prayer come from the heart, motivated from the heart, and in turn changing my mind so that I can truly commune with God. When I pray for food, I'm thankful for that food. Thankful that God has given me the life and the health that He's really given me. And for the food that I'm now blessed with, it came from Him, His bountiful hand. As you live your Christian life and you mature in Christ through years, that means more and more to you. God gave it to us. It's from His bountiful hand that we have what we have. There's no room for me to brag here about what I've got Look what God has done for me, and, and He's given me this. I'm praising God for that. I'm thanking God for that. I'm praying to Him from my heart, Lord, thank You for what You have given to me. And I have so much to be thankful for. It becomes the hub of my relationship to God. And in a difficult time like we face today, I can't just go through the motions now. I've got to really pray with all my heart and with all my mind. It's not some checklist that I do. Okay, today's a new day. I better make sure I pray. Okay, check that one off. It's not that kind of item. It's an item that comes from my heart. It's not viewed as an obligation that I must check off that particular checklist or that one on the box. But it commits us to God that I am to pray with my whole heart, with my whole mind, and all that I have. In Matthew chapter 6, I guess the first big point that I want to make in this particular matter, what Jesus wants me to know about prayer. Don't pray like the Gentiles. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. 
Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The very first thing Jesus mentioned was the greatness of God. When he prayed with regard to God and teaching us about this prayer and how to do it and incorporate these particular matters in this prayer, the first thing he wanted us to know is praise God and recognize the reverence of God. Pray something about the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom has come in Acts chapter 2. We understand about that, Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And you and I have gone through all of the verses with regard to the matter of the coming of the kingdom, the church of the New Testament. We've studied important lessons along that line, but still I want to incorporate something about the kingdom in my prayer, that the kingdom will grow in faith, that the kingdom will grow in number, that the kingdom will become stronger even through difficult times such as this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. He's asking for something. Ask what you need from God. Remember our study of Luke chapter 11. And forgive us our debts. The word debt here means sins. Forgive us our sins as we also have forgiven our debtors so that we will have that kind of forgiving attitude about us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Have a forgiving heart about you, so much so that we need to look toward God for help and guidance. I've got a lot more I want to say about prayer but I'm going to spend more time with that again tonight and discuss with you what Jesus wants you to know about prayer so that our prayers will become efficacious. Our prayers will become faithful prayers, sincere prayers. And once again, I want to say how appreciative I am of these men who stand before us and pray. We have wonderful men who lead us in singing and in prayer, and they read the Scriptures to us, and we're very grateful But I know that I need an important lesson on the matter of how to pray and to pray properly, especially in a day like this. And I can think about the times in which God's people faced very difficult times and the faithful men of God went to God in prayer and prayed sincerely, spread it before the Lord. We studied this morning about Hezekiah. Others could be mentioned. I'll not go through that once again other than to emphasize the importance we need to be together. We need to come together. We need to worship together. We need to pray together. And thank God for all the many blessings that we have. Not simply to have lots of words in our prayers. Poetical type of prayers are fine. But what God is really looking for is the depth of my heart and the importance of my prayer in my life. But if you're not a child of God, you don't really have the benefit of it. If you never name the name of Christ and become obedient to the Word of God, you don't really have the benefit of the prayer, the benefit of this blessing. It is for those who are in Christ that God has given this benefit of prayer. That phrase, in Christ, simply means that I've been obedient to the gospel of Christ. I have faith in Christ, and I've named that faith before others. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. John chapter 8, verse 24. And a number of Bible passages could be used in this regard. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. I've said many times, I believe it's the greatest thing you'll ever say. I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. To repent of your sins. 
Jesus told us to do that in Luke chapter 13 and verse 3. I tell you, nay, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. How essential that is to change from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that we might receive the forgiveness of our sins. That's the way Paul put it in the book of Acts. And there, to reenact and be in the likeness of the resurrection of Christ by means of immersion in water for the remission of our sins. Romans chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. To be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. And then one enters into a new relationship with Christ. One is in Christ. And to be in Christ. And having the spiritual blessings that are to be found in Christ. One of which is this wonderful benefit of prayer. This is what Jesus wants you to know about prayer. He wants you to believe in it. He wants you to engage in it as the hub of your relationship with God and to do so sincerely. If you're not a child of God, I hope you'll become one today. And if you've been unfaithful to the Word of God, then I encourage you to come to Him through repentance and prayer. Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?